You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Um, Song of Solomon is um, one of these books that raises a lot of questions. You know, and I think it's, it's every once in a while good to step back and ask these what I would call kind of meta questions, like why, why would a book like Song of Solomon be in the Bible? I mean, that, that's, that's not necessarily a self-evident question. So, so I don't bury the lead. Let me just tell you a little bit about what I think the book of Sol- Song of Solomon is. The Song of Solomon is, at the end of the day, um, what you might call lyric, uh, erotic poetry. That, that's what it is. Um, lyric poetry in the sense that you have um, simple line structures. There's only, uh, most lyric poems don't go beyond about 16 lines. Uh, it's, it, it tends to be simple in its subject matter. In other words, you're not, you're not getting into T.S. Eliot's, you know, The Wasteland or something and trying to navigate what in the world's being talked about here. It's, just, it's pretty straightforward what's being talked about. So you have a simple subject, simple players, simple actors in the poem. Um, the, the majority of the Song of Solomon is told from the perspective of the female lover. Um, and, and every once in a while you will have the male lover respond um, as well and describe uh, his, his, his young bride. Um, but other than that, it's, it's kind of straightforward, lyric, love, erotic poetry. Um, and it is hot. I mean, I, I, I say, you know, it's, it's a lot of that sort of buried in imagery. Um, I, I remember my own, my own dean, Timothy George, and this may be worth finding on the, the, the uh, uh, Advent Archive, but I remember the dean at the Divinity School at the time preaching a sermon in our Lent series here on the Song of Solomon. I thought that was rather bold of him. And, um, and I, I remember he said, I'm, I'm going to disappoint some of you this morning if you've come thinking that this is going to be you know, 12 steps to, to a better you know, sex life and marriage. That's, that's, that's not where we're going this morning. Um, and so, the, so you have this sort of love erotic poetry, again, like the book of Esther. Now here's another one of these sort of meta questions. God is not mentioned in the book. Um, a, a lot of ink has been spilled on raising what would be called questions of origin, like where, where would these poems have been um, performed? Where, where would they have been sung? A lot suggest maybe these were a collection of, of poems that come from um, uh, wedding ceremonies, festival, festival, festival ceremonies, something like that. We, again, we just don't know. Um, now, it's interesting within the Jewish tradition, and I think this is, this is a kind of interesting way to kind of come at it. The Jewish tradition recognized the book of Song of Solomon coming out of a kind of triad of Solomonic expression, so that you're linking some of these what we would call wisdom books to, to the actual person, Song of Solomon. Not necessarily that he wrote all of it, but that he's the kind of instigator of this, of this tradition. Rabbi Akiva, for example, in the medieval period, suggested that, um, that Solomon wrote the Song of Solomon when he was a young man, um, which kind of reflects the, you know, the virility of youth, and wrote the Proverbs as a middle-aged man, um, which is, again, now you've sort of got the middle age, and you're beginning to think about, well, what, how, does, how does life work? I mean, ho- hopefully we start thinking about it a little bit earlier, but how, how does life work, um, and how best do I live life well? with the book of Ecclesiastes reflecting the, the, the end of life. So here you have Solomon now, or at least the projection is Solomon at the end of his life, looking back on life and giving some, 
you know, if I can uh, use the line from the Shawshank Redemption, you know, giving some advice to his younger self. You know, if I could talk to my younger self, I'd like to tell him a few things. I've got a colleague who, who's quite known. He, he wrote a very um, widely sold Old Testament theology. It's a book that's done very, very well. And he wrote that book when he was really young. And it's funny, apparently he tells the students of Beeson that he looks at the author of that book like a distant nephew now. It's like, I wonder, you know, I'd like to talk to the guy who wrote that book, you know. Um, so that's the kind of perspective. of uh, now, now, the Christian tradition raised a similar kind of claim about the Song of Solomon related to, 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 the, to Solomon. And they actually put the Song of Solomon at the end of Solomon's life not at the beginning, and I want to sort of leave that out there to suggest to you the reason why the Christian tradition did that is they recognized that once you you get into the book of Song of Solomon, you're entering into into mysterious um, and powerful territory. There's a reason why it's called the Song of Songs. That's a classic kind of Hebraic phraseology. Um, Hevel Hevelim. Isn't that interesting? So that, that, that's vanity of vanities. Uh, meaninglessness of meaninglessness. It's, it's meaningless, if I could put it in our terms, times 10 to the 10th power. Um, this is a song that's times 10 to the 10th power. In other words, this is celebrating one of the great mysteries of what it means to be human, recognizing that these mysteries actually touch on the transcendent. This, this is one of those places where erotic marital love, the, the union between a man and a woman and all that's, that is pertaining to that is one of those places that I think we might describe as a, as a thin place where heaven and earth kind of meet. Um, it's interesting, years ago I was watching, I think it was on the First Things website, but I was watching some discussion among uh, some scholars, one of them being a, a, a priest. And the priest says, you know, for someone who's never had marital relations, I get asked a lot about it. Um, you know, it's just part of my role. That's an interesting thing about being a priest in the Catholic Church. You're speaking a lot on things that you really have no personal experience of. And yet at the same time, he said, I do think I understand one thing about um, the, the sexualized culture that we're in. He said, in part, people are giving themselves to this headlong because they desire the transcendent. I mean, there's something about that particular moment in time that actually can detach you from the warp and woof of what it means to live with the burdens of human existence. It's, it's, it's transcendent. Philosophers have talked this way for a long time. My, my wife and two of my boys last night went to hear Dvorak at the symphony. Um, and they, they well, I, you know, I'm their chauffeur, you know, pulling up in the minivan to pick them up, and and, uh, and and they get in the car, and I can tell that they just had an experience, you know, like so, something was pretty profound. And we were talking about it on the way home. And I said, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it, that even what you might consider some of the most dyspeptic philosophers of the last 150 years, people like Schopenhauer and Nietzsche, who are, you know, not, not all that excited about what it really means to be human, at least in the ways in which the Christian tradition has spoken about that. But when they would talk about music or the arts, that's a moment where you actually can experience bliss in, in the day-to-day affairs of human existence that can detach you, at least for a moment in time, from all the suffering that you know of what it means to be, the challenges of what it means to be human. And I think what we would say about art, whether it's the visual arts or whether it's the oral arts, and I think Solomon is saying something here about the realm of human sexuality, that this is, this is sacred ground. 
um, because this sacred ground is a place that actually, as a gift of God to humanity, is a place where the divine and the human touch in ways that we're, we strain after language to really talk about that. And that's why here it's poetry, and not really even necessarily great poetry, but it's poetry that's the, that's the mechanism, the literary device, elevated language, lots of imagery that's being used here to describe something that at the end of the, of the day is ineffable and is beyond our ability to actually communicate. Um, we, we all know that we live in a highly sexualized world. I mean, we, we're in a post-Fordian world. We're in a world where people think about this, are primarily identifying themselves even in the public market according to their sexuality. That is a very recent phenomenon, right? Um, so we know that when we get into the realm of sexuality, this is a huge issue in our culture today. And the Song of Solomon is here canonically to let you and me know that when we're talking about human sexuality and all that pertains to that, we're entering into the realm of the transcendent and the divine. This, this there we go again. This is God's territory, I think is the point. Um, and it's a territory that's unique. Um, within the human realm, um, at least among other experiences that allow us, I think, to kind of enter into a moment of transcendence that touches where heaven and earth begin to meet. Um, so the Song of Solomon is, is, is a remarkable book. Um, and it's a book, by the way, that from, I would say, its earliest reception has been understood as doing um, multiple things at once, right? I, I, and I'm just going to lay my cards out here, and you can push back on me in the Q&A, which we're not going to have, um, if you'd like. <laughs> um, but, um, I, I mean, my, my, my sense is that we don't have... The, the, the Book of Song of Solomon is not in the Bible. It's not been received canonically because of its emphasis on human sexuality alone. From its earliest inception, the book of Song of Solomon has, has been understood to know that the kind of sexualized language that's being used here is inviting you into a kind of metaphoric understanding of the profundity of the relationship between God and his people. And when we begin to speak about God and his people, we're doing so in such a way that allows one of the most intimate um, and sacred moments of human existence to be the means by which the special character of that relationship between God and his people is, is described. And just so we don't sort of, you know, bury the lead on all of this, Hosea is a classic example in the prophets of someone that God has called to enter into the co complications of human and sexual marital relations and all that that entails as an as the primary illustration that God is using to describe his relationship with his people. And then what do we get in Revelation 21 when heaven and earth begin to meet in the new heavens and the new earth? It's the lamb and the church being described as the bride coming together. So this bridal language, this groom language, it's, it permeates the Bible. I've got a colleague who's retired from Beeson, but he, and I, I think maybe this is a bit overstated, but he would say this is the chief metaphor that the Bible uses to describe God's relating to his people as the husband and wife metaphor. Um, we see it in the book of Ephesians, right? That even the marital, a husband loving his wife and a life, a wife relating back to the husband, that that itself is an indication of Christ and his relationship with the church. So it's not beyond the pale within the canon itself to understand that the book of Song of Solomon does talk about human sexuality. 
but it's also talking about more than merely human sexuality, mainly, namely the ways in which human sexuality, the erotic character of husband-wife relationships, actually witness to the profound profundity of God's love for his people. You, you, you may be, I, I find, and I'm not sure completely what to do with this yet, but this is just basically my, my instinct. Um, there, these five small books in the writings, we did one last week, Ruth, we're doing Song of Solomon today, which comes after Ruth, and, the, and that sort of five small books. They were all put together on one scroll called the Megalote. I mean, that's good cocktail conversation if you need something to talk about. Um, but the Megalote has these five small books. You have, um, what are the five books? You have Ruth, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, kind of interesting there, Lamentations, and then Esther. So these five books were, were gathered together very early in the Jewish reception tradition. These five books were linked to particular festivals in Israel's um, worshiping calendrical year. So, for example, uh, the book of Ruth, I believe, was read at the festival of Sukkot, which is the festival of booths, remembering that God kept them and preserved them in huts in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. So you've got that there with Sukkot. This might be of interest, interest to you. Do, do you know when Song of Solomon was read? I, and again, worth thinking about. Anybody? Passover. Isn't that interesting? What's, what's Passover a, a remembrance of? Well, lots of things. But in particular, God's rescuing of his people from the land of Egypt. So you think about that, what, can we call it this, that liturgical reception of the book of Song of Solomon and the Jewish worshiping tradition. They're reading Song of Solomon in light of God, the, the groom, coming to rescue his wife. Right? So it's all read within that sort of Passover frame. So this is, I think, part and parcel of what we have going on within, within the book of, of Song of Solomon. So um, there's an erotic character here. There's a lot of imagery that's going on. Um, this is, uh, this is again, coming from Rabbi Akaba. I'm going to read you a quote here. This, you're interested in this. Whoever trills the Song of Solomon in banquet halls and treats it merely like lyric has no share in the world to come. Pretty strong statement. In other words, even in Akaba's day, there were those who wanted to settle on the erotic and suggestive of a meaning alone and leave the kind of religious um, side uh, bits to the side. And, and Akaba levels um, a warning against them. Here, here's another, I think, sort of central issue of the Book of Song of Solomon. You find a lot of imagery that's drawn from the natural world. So, in effect, you have. And by the way, I, I'm not persuaded, I could be persuaded, I'm not persuaded that there's a narrative to the book of Song of Solomon. You'll, you'll read some out there that suggest that you can kind of follow some ups and downs of the particularities of the relationship here. I'm not necessarily persuaded by that. I could be. Um, I think what you just have here is a collection of sort of independent, you know, lyric, erotic poems culminating, I think, at chapter 8. Um, but I'm not sure there's a kind of identifiable narrative per se. But with that said... You are left with the feeling of two, of two young lovers walking through the natural world and pointing out very common features of the natural world and finding illustrations or metaphors of their own love. You know, so they're going around and they see a plant in an orchard or, or a garden, a grapes, gazelle, sh uh, sheep. I mean, all of this imagery is, is meant um, to sort of draw the, the lovers here in Song of Solomon into the natural world and, to, and, to na and now their love 
and the intensity of their love for one another becomes the lens by which they're viewing the world. These are the people you hope don't come to Thanksgiving dinner. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, you know what that sort of young, awkward love is like. I, you know, there's just the sort of goo goo gaga stuff that's going on. I go, oh my, you know, whatever. Um, but at the same time, there is something somewhat powerful about this sense of new love that requires maturing. We all know that. But that sense of new love that's going through the world and beginning to see the world in that way. Oh, my love's like a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June. I mean, that is not. I mean, thank you, Robert Burns. But, you know, whatever. It's not a great poem. But you get the idea. My love is like a red, red rose. And now I'm beginning to think in terms of similitude and simile and metaphors. So I'm working around the world and I see a fault. Now this is, you know, be careful, men in the room. I'm not sure this is going to help you on Valentine's Day. But in this world, you know, flock of sheep. Look at all those white sheep. Kind of reminds me of my wife's teeth. You know, I'll... I'll use that, you know, in my next Hallmark card to her or something like that. Have you ever seen, this is worth uh, Googling, by the way. There's some, somebody, kind of churlish actually, but they, uh, they, they put together a picture of what, they, they, they read all the metaphors of the woman realistically in Song of Solomon and put a picture, like her neck is like the Tower of David, you know, so she's like this and the teeth are sheep. And that, that, anyway, if you need a comedic side effect, get, give that a go. Um, so all to say something about the structure of these psalms. We're dealing here again with lyric poetry. Um, I wanted to read you a quote from Bernard of Clairvaux. I took a picture of this this morning. There seemed to be within, I think, the history of the tradition, um, a- a- almost a predictable move that medieval theologians would make. They'd kind of save a commentary for the book of Song of Solomon for the, toward the end of their lives. So, I mean, the point being, once you, once you sort of get into this book of Song of Solomon, you recognize that you're moving into the land of, what, of, of, again, the mysterious character of relating to God. This is what Bernard of Clairvaux said about the book of Song of Solomon. I think this is beautiful. Who is it whom your soul loves? For whom you inquire. He has no name. Who are you and who is he? I speak like this because of the strange style of speech and extraordinary disregard for names quite different from the usual ways of Scripture. Now, if we step back here, I think what Bernard is saying is we have Song of Sol- we have Solomon mentioned at the beginning here, but once you start getting into the poem, you're not really told who it's being talked about here. So you, you get a sense that these are ready-made for any person at any moment in time. But in this marriage song, it is affections, not words, that are to be considered. Why is this except that the holy love, which is the subject of the entire song, cannot be expressed by words or language, but only in deed and truth? And then he sets this line apart. Here, in this Poem, love speaks everywhere. If anyone desires to grasp these writings, let him love. For anyone who does not love, it is vain to listen to the song of love or to read it, for a cold heart cannot catch fire from its eloquence. The one who does not know Greek cannot understand Greek, nor can one ignorant of Latin understand another speaking Latin, etc. So too the language of love will be meaningless jangle like sounding brass or tinkling cymbal to anyone who does not love. That's interesting, isn't it? Because he's providing here for you 
I think what he would say is your entry point to really being able to understand the book. I mean, we might think of understanding the book of Song of Solomon as requiring a kind of uncovering of the character of lyric poetry. All this could be very helpful. Diving into the images that are here. What's the garden? What's the orchard? What are gazelles? Why grapes? Why fawns? Why all this imagery? And you can kind of press into that. That's all fascinating. But he says at the end of the day, when it comes to the subject matter of what, this, uh, what the Song of Songs are about, these elevated songs, you cannot enter into them unless you know love itself. And I think he would say, and know all the complexity that comes along with love. It's interesting to me when you think about a book like Song of Solomon and Hosea in comparison with the book of Deuteronomy. The, the, the book of Deuteronomy calls on us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind. That's what it calls on. Now, it's interesting to think about commanding someone to love. This is worth thinking about. What does it mean to command someone to love someone else? That typically does not result in its intended effect or desire. You know, if you're, if you're in a marital situation and you've got difficulties or challenges, or you're in a little bit of a spat, demanding the other person to love you in that moment, you know, I'm, I'm no counselor. <laughs> but I don't suggest it, right? Um, just doesn't tend to sort of yield the desired effect. So what is it that God's doing here when he's calling us to love him? And again, th- this is where I think it's very important to read Deuteronomy carefully. The call is a, is a sense of exclusive loyalty to God and to God alone. I mean, th- this is the, I just did a wedding for a, my niece. You kind of brought a homily for her at her wedding about a month and a half ago. And, and, and I was, you know, at the wedding, I'm like, listen, I mean, the call that you're in, the, the vows that you're making right now are the conditions of the covenant. It's, it's a commitment to the other person. It's, it's a commitment to exclusive loyalty to the other person. Love the Lord your God and love him alone. No other. So that exclusivity of the marital relationship, no other but the one that I'm making vows to, that becomes what I think we might call the fertile soil for the conditions of really growing into love. Now what's interesting though is Deuteronomy is not the only book in the Bible. This is one of the things that's so fun about the Bible because that can sound very kind of detached and also and maybe even depersonalized. And I, I tell students this regularly in, my, in classes at Beeson. Listen, when you're getting married to somebody, when you're entering into that kind of covenantal relationship, you almost have to be, this may sound scandalous, but you almost have to be more committed to the covenant itself than even the person. Because the person, I mean, you know this about yourself, don't you? We are, cha- we are moving targets, changing with the wind. Um, I had a little moment yesterday, I'm like, have I, you know, am I, am I still, you ever, am I still thinking correctly? Right? I mean, you just have these moments where you, got, you, you kind of keep going through life and you recognize that sometimes you don't even know your own self, much less your spouse. So the commitment that you're making in marriage itself, which is again this metaphor for God's relationship to us, is a commitment to the relationship and the covenant even more so than the person. That's what I call the sort of fertile conditions for the soil of love to grow. But Deuteronomy is not the only book. You've got Hosea and the heartbreak of a broken marriage. You've got the book of Song of Solomon that reveals to us, I think, what we might call the intensity and passion of romance. I like to think of Song of Solomon and Deuteronomy's covenantal understanding of marital relations in relation to one another. They're both needed, but I can't have the one without the other. 
If I'm, if I'm relying just on the heat of affection and the heat of early romance to sustain, I see enough gray hair in here to know that most of the people here who've, who've made it for a while with that other person, it wasn't because the heat of romance got you here. It was a sort of dogged determination, right? That we're, we're sticking through this. I mean, I, I, Naomi's, she's not here this morning, so I'm going to go ahead and say this. Um, I mean, I can remember, uh, and, and we, we, we laugh about this now, but it wasn't funny then. You know, our first two years were hard, right? I mean, it was just hard all around. And I can remember the two of us having this sort of moment of, well, this might not be great, but it's not going to be great together. Right, and it was like the, 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 we're, none of us are going anywhere with one another. We're we're, we're going to stick through this, but this this is this is not what we expected. Um, neither one of us, I, and I'm sure many of you've had that moment. Maybe you haven't. Then, gosh, I'm jealous. Um, <laughs> but many of you have, I imagine, only to know that once that settled, the, the the green fields on the other side of that are unimaginable. It's the sort of entering into the the the, the space of the joy of the Song of Solomon moment again and again. And I think what the scriptures are wanting us to know is that's the character of God's relating to us. It enters us into that, the profundity of that relationship. God and his love for us is a love that's covenantally committed. He cannot turn himself away from us in his affection and his love for us. That, to me, is the, is the driving pulse of the book of Hosea. Even when you get, and he flips metaphors in the book and goes through the father-son relationship in 11 and 12. But once you get into Hosea 11 and 12, what, what does the prophet use then as a metaphor? God saying, oh Ephraim, you're my son. I wish I could reject you, but I just can't. I just can't do it. I'm too committed to you. Um, uh, I'm, I'm reading, I'm, I'm in the middle of a two-week intensive class at Beeson reading the Hebrew text of Isaiah with students. It has been a blast. I was nervous about it. It's been so fun. Um, we're about to turn to Isaiah chapter 40 tomorrow morning where you have a shift from you know, just sort of overwhelming despair of 36 to 39, deliverance and despair. And then you have comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to the heart. All this affection language, speak tenderly to the heart of Jerusalem. And you're like, well, well what were the conditions that gave rise to Isaiah 40 and God turning from judgment back to mercy and grace to his people? Was it because they finally got their act together? That's never in the narrative in the prophets. God can't help himself. That's the point. That's how we pick our God out of the lineup of other gods. He can't help himself. He's, he's committed doggedly to the relationship that he's established with us and his son. And he's drawn us into the very love that he has for his son by the Spirit. And that's the dynamic of a book like Song of Solomon. And even if the, the way the book begins, it's just right in your face. Uh, the Song of Songs from Solomon and then the first one, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Wow, right there you have it. And look at the way in which the Song of Solomon ends. If you move toward the end of the book, Song of Solomon 8. Set me as a seal upon your heart and as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. I think a way of reading that is love is stronger than the fear of death. It's a way of reading that. Um, people that love their, their, their affections and their loyalties are committed to someone other than them. 
Don't think twice about self-sacrifice in the face of a threat against them. It's stronger than death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. Its, it's flashes are flashes of fire. It's a most vehement flame. And then look at verse 7. Many waters cannot quench love. Floods cannot drown it. If a man, this is great, if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly scorned. And if someone said, I'll give you all the wealth of my house if I can have your love, it would be like, that's, that's not even, no, no way. Um, I, I'll, this is probably, don't, don't, you can send me an email if you need to on this. Um, but I'll, I'll tease my, I'll sometimes tease Mary. I'll say, Mary, someone just offered $3 million for you. And I'm debating it. What do you think? You think I should take up that? And she and I'm like, and then I'll jokingly say, Mary, they couldn't give me all the money in the world, right? I mean, I think that's what's going on here. It's all the money in the world. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. It pales in comparison um, to what to what love actually offers. This, I think, drives us a book like Song of Solomon, as interesting and sort of provocative as it is. I think it actually draws us into the very core of what it means to be a Christian. Because at the core of our Christian existence, as we make our ways through this pilgrim journey, is we are wrestling every day with our desires. You think you're primarily a rational thinking creature? Can I just assert to you that you are not? Um, I'm not either. And I tend to sort of, you know, sometimes pat myself on the back for being able to kind of at least pretending to want to think critically and analytically about something. And we need to do that. We never do that in any enterprise that we do in a way that detaches ourselves from our person and our affections. It's impossible. We are people that are marked by desire. And the scriptures know that. And they raise what have been classic philosophical questions about what does it mean to be truly happy and where can desires be ultimately fulfilled. The Bible raises all those questions and it drives you even in the realm of human sexuality, that most intimate moment between a man and a woman, that moment of human sexuality is not an end unto itself. It's an invitation and a foretaste of what it means to experience the transcendence and the bliss of the eternal love of God, which is where our ultimate hopes are. Everything in the world around us is competing for our affections. Love me, love me, desire me. Everything's competing for our affections. And the challenge of the Christian life, I think again and again, is ordering our affections by God's grace so that all the good things out there that God gives us, even human sexuality, is recognized as not an end. Because when these things become ends, they become idols, which lead to our own misery. So it's an amazing thing to think about how good things can have as their end our misery. When we don't recognize that these things are uses, they're gifts that draw us and point us and whisper, hey, psst, hey you, enjoying that moment right here. Do know that you're experiencing something right now that witnesses beyond itself to the glory and the beauty and the bliss and the transcendence of the love of God. And you're called into that. Our, our Christian lives are, are, are riddled with this challenge, I think. Thinking through our desires and our love. So here Song of Solomon leads us this morning. Um, and I encourage you to read it. Um, you, you, I'm preaching in a couple weeks. If the sermon gets boring, pull, pull Song of Solomon out. Start reading through it. I mean, it's, it's, they're, they're just rich. 
um, and beautiful and tender and a little provocative at times. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to say, I know what that image is saying, right? I mean, that, you, you can get it. And to recognize that that's in our Bible, and it's in our Bible, again, even in itself, not as an end, but as an invitation into what it means that God has set his affections on us and asks us to set our affections ultimately back onto him. Christianity is not just the, the ascent of our intellect to things that we believe. It's important to believe certain things. I believe in doctrine. I'm glad that we say creeds and confessions all the time here at our church. It's important. But our faith is not merely an intellectual one. It's one that draws our whole person in, mind, will, emotion, and affection, to recognize where those things find their healing, their wholeness, and their ultimate purpose. And that's in our relating to God. And even, think about this, sex witnesses to something beyond itself that. And I think you should also say, and we, we, this is worth talking about, and I'll just say it and then I'll pray. Um, it also tells us that the, the realm of sexuality is not, is not a realm to be trifled with. It's, it's, a, it's sacrosanct in the Bible. It's, it's treated very, it's, 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 it's the realm of the body and the way in which the body actually relates to the spirit. So this is, there's a lot that's going on here within the Bible to think about these things and the way in which they relate to our ultimate affections and desires. Okay, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for these friends here and um, Lord, we're all making our way in this world and we also know that we are up and down and three steps forward, two steps back and um, don't, don't even always even know our own selves very well. Um, but Lord, you've given us, even in this world, uh, the experience of love, even the heartbreak of love, um, to let us know and to draw us into where our ultimate desires and affections and joys and passions lie. In you, N nothing that's offered here, Lord, in this world is better than you. You are our portion in our life. And we're asking you this morning by your spirit to draw us into that so that even when we enjoy the good gifts of this world, even human sexuality in this world, that we know that we're, we're dancing on top of the mountains where the, the divine and the human touch and to draw us into the beauty of the gospel that you've revealed to us in your son, Jesus. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.